This is TDPS. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Are you sick of doing promos for my new books yet? That depends. Are we at the beach? Yes, we're at Sapphire Cove, the fictional Southern California resort featured in my new gay romance series coming in 2022. This is alarming. When did we go outside? You were transported by the powerful prose of C. Travis Rice. That's my new pen name devoted to steamy and emotional tales of romance between men. Yeah, no, that's not it. I was about to eat a sandwich in the studio, and now I'm being harassed by seagulls. Brandon, get rid of the seagulls, please. Oh, that's much better. Now I have to pee. First, pre-order your copy of Sapphire Sunset, the first installment in the Sapphire Cove series, which goes on sale March 1st, 2022, from Blue Box Press, when a new member of the resort security department falls hard for the nephew of the wealthy family that owns the place, sparks fly, and sexy scandal ensues at Sapphire Cove. Uh, Yeah, could you pre-order that for me? I'm going to run to the little podcaster's room. Brandon! Come get this seagull! I can't help it if my writing sets the scene. I know what I'm going to set if someone doesn't come get this seagull. Where'd you get that sandwich? Sapphire Sunset, the first book in the Sapphire Cove series from C. Travis Rice. Now available for pre-order. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And we promised you that this is going to be the most shocking true crime TV club ever. And we believe we're going to make good on that promise. (laughs) We're both rushing to make good on that promise. We are shocked. Um, We're going to get right into it today because we have a lot to talk about. But the standard uh, true crime TV club disclaimer is that we serve up the episode that we're talking about in enough detail that you should not feel compelled to watch it on your own. But if you do want to watch it on your own, on your own, excuse me, today's topic is World's Most Evil Killers is the name of the series. It's season five, episode seven. The episode title and the subject of the show is Patrick Kearney. And it's also Pride Month. So it's us... Doing our Pride Month right. thing, but we're doing our regular stuff, too. So it's True Crime TV Club during Pride Month. And so what originally attracted us to this story was, this was, as we read the description, this was the story of a serial killer who they uh, called the Trash Bag Killer, mm-hmm. who was um, targeting, sexually assaulting, and murdering young men. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And this is in the late 1970s, so we'll get right. So the special begins, as so many of them do. There's no suspense here around who the killer might be. Uh, They begin with—it's July 1977— 
A man walks into a sheriff's department in Riverside County. He is essentially turning Why the himself. Long face? <laughs> <laughs> He's essentially turning himself in, and he confesses to killing over thirty people. This is Patrick Kearney, who will become known to history as the trash bag killer. We're also told that a few months later, in February 1978, the 38-year-old Patrick Kearney, who was also an aircraft engineer, um, pleads guilty to t murdering 20 young men and boys. So that's as many as they were able to charge him with. And the youngest victim was just five years old. So again, as these specials often do, we go back to the very beginning of this story and we meet former Riverside County Deputy District Attorney Dan Bukowski. And he explains to us that in the late 70s, three bodies were discovered in Riverside County without head, feet, or hands. Please remember that detail. One of these bodies was identified as 17-year-old John LeMay. And it was a unique thing because the... Part, the reason for removing the heads, the feet, and the hands was so that you couldn't identify the bodies. And they had had – it wasn't their first time at this rodeo, mm -hmm. but this particular body had a very unique – and they never said what it was – birthmark. Mm -hmm. So and that gave them something to work with as they tried to find um, the person that matched that particular descriptive factor. And so they found a woman named Teresa Rooney, who was the sister of John LeMay, and they had her and other members of her family travel to the Riverside County Sheriff's Department to give blood tests and to identify a photograph. And it turns out this becomes the positive identification of 17-year-old John LeMay. This, in a detail that's not offered, and I think there was more to the story here that was not being covered, but somehow this identification leads them to one of John's last whereabouts. And maybe I think it was Teresa, a member of the family, knew where John was supposed the to be going. The last person, the last place that John was, that uh, that John LeMay was supposed to be going was to the home of David Hill, who was the roommate of Patrick Kearney. Who we met in the opening. Um, and so, okay, bum, 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 bum. Uh, we're talking, uh, we then go into the biography of who is Patrick Kearney is essentially the, the M.O. of the beginning of the special. His story begins in Los Angeles in uh, 1939. He's born on the 24th of September. He's the oldest of three brothers. He's small. He's a scrawny child who's targeted by bullies. At the age of 18, he confesses to others that he has fantasies about killing people in retaliation for the abuse that he's undergoing. His father, George, works a lot and seems disinterested in raising a family, but he teaches his son how to shoot. He will take him hunting out in the woods. So his father is this sort of stereotypically masculine archetype, and his son is quite the opposite, with the exception that he knows how to fire a gun. Yeah, he was, a, he was proficient with, hand, exactly. with, with weapons, with uh, guns and handguns. By the age of 20, Patrick Kearney joins the Air Force as an engineer, He's living in Texas, and there he meets and falls in love with a man named David Hill. Hill leaves his wife for Kearney, and by 1977, the two of them have moved back to California, and Patrick is working as an engineer at Hughes Aircraft, which is, I don't know if it's still in business. Southern California used to be a huge aerospace engineering area. Oh, yeah, and like, it still is. It still is. I mean, so many people moved here Hughes for that Aft reason. Aircraft yeah. is still... Here. Yeah, and Raytheon is here, which is a defense contractor. There's, they're they're all, all huge, here. huge. They're here. 
Um, 70 miles away from where Hill and Kearney are living, Dan Bukowski from Riverside County Sheriff's is assigned to look at some evidence regarding those bodies we talked about early. Uh, his description of these bodies is that they were expertly dismembered with no hesitation marks. So somebody who had experience cutting up a human body was responsible for these. They described him as somebody who was competent at butchering human beings. Yeah. It was not done like randomly or with hacking or anything mm-hmm. else. They were very proficient at, um, what did he call it? Disactuating? Uh, disarticulating. Disarticulating. Which was like a, a word for dismemberment that tries to think, I think, cover up some of the horror of dismemberment, right? March 1977, 17-year-old John LeMay goes missing. His sister Teresa is just nine years old. From the body parts that they recover, they can't determine his cause of death. Um, but if it had followed a normal pattern, and again, the special sort of giving this to us all at once... Um, he would have been shot in the head with a 22 Derringer, sexually assaulted in either a semi-conscious or dead state, and then dismembered and put in a plastic trash bag and dumped. Um, the cause of death from LeMay could not be proven because they never found his head, his hands, or his feet. Remember that detail, please. Um, Patricia LeMay, John's mother, brings them a clue. She's the one, as we said earlier, the last person John was supposed to go meet was this guy by the name of David Hill. David Hill becomes a person of interest. This leads the authorities to his door. He is living in Redondo Beach with his partner, Patrick Kearney. Gay marriage is not legal at the time, so there's no way for them to be married. They're just roommates. Um, friends or roommates. Special friend. They do a search of the house while Patrick Kearney watches them. And during this search... Um, a dog found traces of white hair and blue carpet fibers that matched traces found on the trash bag. Yeah, a dog didn't find that. Okay, I think that was my notes went I think sideways. So. They, they <laughs> found white dog hairs. They found white dog hair, excuse and me. And blue carpet fibers. The dog did not find blue carpet fibers <laughs> or even dog hairs. The dog actually was shedding them, but right. they found them. There and they were actually elements that they found matched, um, got caught up in the tape and right, and okay. plastic bags where the bodies were stored. So it's it's pay dirt as far as they're concerned, and so they go and they get a search warrant for a more extensive search. They return on the nineteenth of May, and Patrick and David have fled. They're gone. They have hit the road. Uh, the search continues. I assume they were able to break down the door per the search warrant. Vacuum cleaner evidence from the search links Kearney to the bodies. Uh, they also find these round plastic circles, which match punch-outs from a unique kind of trash bag that was used for the bodies, but was also in use at Hughes Aircraft. So that is quite, and it's not, it's a rare uh, trash bag. It's not a Well, comp- it was very unusual. It was like a drawstring. Right. Like, like a drawstring canvas bag. They show it. They show a diagram Right. It's of not it. yeah. like the drawstrings that we're used to today. In fact, it may have predated the ones that we're used mm-hmm. to today. I'm not sure if they had drawstring bags, but there were holes in the bag where these punch-outs had come from where you could thread right. a drawstring through and pull them shut. And they were used at—they were industrial, and they were used at Hughes Aircraft. And they had a supply of these bags in the attic of their house. David Hill and Patrick Kearney did. 
They also found a hacksaw blade. This is the cops now found a hacksaw blade that looked normal upon inspection, but when it was taken apart, they discovered blood and human hair in the space between the blade and the bolt. And then they did luminol spray in the bathroom and horror and it show. Looked like yeah, blood everywhere. It is clearly that it is clear that the bathtub was used for repeated dismemberment of bodies. At, they said at least one, but probably multiple bodies had been dismembered. Had been there'd been a lot of bleeding in that bathtub. So there's nothing specifically linking these two men to the murder. But the house is linked to the murders, which is, becomes an important distinction in the eye of the legal uh, process that follows. Okay, Here was the weirdest detail, or one of them, I thought. They find a box of manila envelopes that uh, match the, an envelope they found in the home of one of the victims, one of those three Riverside County discovered bodies. His name was Arturo Marquez. And... They had mailed his keys. The killer. To his house. Yeah. Mailed his keys back to his house because they st- they still had his car keys when they killed him. So they mailed his keys back, which is like, like, what? Wow, that is so, that is really, yeah. like, it's not twisted. It's just, the thing that they spoke of repeatedly as they were talking about him was his complete disconnection emotionally mm-hmm. from the crimes. He didn't seem to care or yeah. feel any sort of empathy or like there was a problem with shooting people in the heads and cutting them up and mm-hmm. having sex with them, whether they were dead or not, or, you know, right. like just really just a very, very disconnected. That is the kindest word I can think of. Person, so it, this Kearney. It turns out that Hill and Kearney have fled to Texas, which is where they met. APBs are put out. Within months, they both return to California and they turn themselves in. Which is the strangest mailing back the car keys. And these are two moments in the story where I feel like details are missing. I don't feel like we're being lied to, like with the Henry Diaz murder on that other special. But I think that there's, there's some... Like, were the keys mailed to him when he was still alive and they had a social relationship with him? And it's just a, I don't know. Like, I want to know more about that. But to be honest, this is not a very written about case. This is not one of those. There were surprisingly yeah. few details. Part of the reason we picked it out was because we'd really never heard of it. And it was our neck of the woods. Yeah. It was Southern California. And given the description, it seemed like. You know, gay people were being targeted at some level for these crimes, and there had been quite a number of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so we, you know, we're we're we can't really follow up on any of the details, but uh, we kind of have to take their word for them. But just and the, I will say of this show, it's kind of just the facts, ma'am. I mm-hmm. mean, they really just sort of roll it off, and you can draw your own conclusions. It's very informative, right. but it is not. And there's really like voiceless um, reenactors. They yes. hired people to sort of show up, not really to stage the crimes themselves, but to sort of yeah. take you through. So we're not just looking at, because in 1977, there's not pictures of them. Mm. There's not footage of them. There's not television. There's not nothing. And we've never heard of this crime. So it wasn't even particularly covered in the moment that it happened. And uh, Yeah. There's not that endless tape loop of archival news footage of the bodies being discovered. And again, it gets back to how much was this reported on because it was all men. There were some pretty 
high-profile gay serial killers of gay men in Southern California during that period who did get coverage on the news, like Randy Kraft and William Bonin. But Patrick Kearney apparently wasn't one of them, or this special is no indication that he was. All right, July 1st, 1977. Kearney's arrested, right? And he tells them under questioning, David Hill is completely innocent. And Kearney now says he's been killing since 1962 and he's killed over 30 victims. He details the murders, including John LeMay's killing. He claims he brought John to his house and they were watching television and that John changed the channel, which made Patrick angry, and he shot him in the back of the head. He cut John up. He removed the head, hands, and feet, drove them out to Corona, which is a long way from Redondo Beach, and dumped them in a trash can in a park. So anybody who's seen, I'm blanking on his name now, but they just did a Netflix special about him, Earl Lee something or other, who confessed to 100 murders, and it turns out he was bullshitting about a lot of them. right? Right. We no longer put as much stock in all of these, oh, I killed 60 people. Like, there's some sick people out there that get a charge out of confessing to murders they didn't commit. Okay. But... Kearney does um, give them verifiable details of a murder that he committed in his apartment in 1968 in Los Angeles, I believe. And he says he cut the body up into small pieces, put them in a box, and buried them under his apartment building. He also went to great lengths to remove the bullet from the head of the victim using a hacksaw. And he draws cops a map of where he left the remains. And sure enough, they follow that map and they discover the remains. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. As Kearney's confessions continue to unwind, he talks about targeting hitchhikers. Uh, He confesses to a case that has gone unsolved in Hawthorne, which is close to the Redondo Beach area. Heartbreaking. 1975. We're introduced to Karen Fryer, the sister of a young man named Larry Walters, who was um, uh, special needs, as we would say it today. I don't think that's how they phrase it in the show, that he was slow to develop mentally, that at the age of 21 he had the emotional life of a 10-year-old. He went missing one night when he was staying over with his sister. Uh, Nobody ever knew what happened to him. And then years later, Patrick Kearney is confessing to his murder. Uh, He's confessing that he found the guy hitchhiking on the side of the road. Um, He, uh, you know, we got a lot of the sister's story, but I think we're going to move through that. Um, Basically, the details of the murder is that Kearney picks up the man, drives him to his house in Redondo Beach, very similar to, to the story with John LeMay, shoots him in the head. Um... The body has never been found. No, so Kearney, we only have his yeah his word for um, like, and it's one of the things they pointed out was that people are, 
have been left without anything other than Kearney's word for it. And yeah. the only murders we know of that Kearney committed are the ones that he could remember. He said there were probably ones that he couldn't remember. He said probably more than 30. They only charged him with 21. Yeah. And he said there were probably more, but he couldn't remember them. It was not – killing was very much sort of a way of life for him. This, but the, the criminologists – one of the two criminologists are interviewed, and they're British, both British, which I think this is actually a British show. I, it is. Yeah. Um, the criminologist says if Kearney's going to confess to this murder but not tell you where the body is, there's a story that body tells that he doesn't want told, which I thought was an interesting thing. Like, if he's going to tell you where the remains of his first murder are without hesitation, why is he not telling you where he put Larry Walters? I think that's a reasonable speculation, yeah. although I think it's also possible he doesn't remember specifically. But True. I, I think there's so much of this that's about... Just simply, I mean, they don't call him the trash bag killer for nothing, mm-hmm. right? He separates the hands and feet and head from the body of the victim and then cuts up the body of the victim and then distributes in trash cans all over. So I think a lot of his victims are in landfills mm-hmm. and he wouldn't know which one or how to locate them. Yeah. Like, I, I think it is, I think that's as much a part of why he can't tell what happened. I think that's. An interesting surmise on that man's part. I heard mm-hmm. that too, and I thought, mm, there's probably some indication of that, but I think there's probably other, a lot of other instances where he just simply couldn't possibly yeah. have found them because that wasn't his MO. Um, they don't go into a lot of detail about this, but at some point around this time in the special, they say that he cut a hole in the bodies and had sex with the hole is that i was like oh my god is i that have really no what idea saying? i I'm, didn't yeah i didn't really want to go down that path yeah. with it it was like okay that's what he said again i don't know how they would know that necessarily yeah. and i shot them because they changed the channel is not a story that i believe i think there was more well, going on but that's his telling them yeah, the story exactly. so the other thing that's really interesting is that lemay was not going there to visit Kearney. LeMay was got Kearney picked him up and drove him over there. But LeMay had told his mother that he was going to visit David Hill. That's yeah. why they went to the house. So the connection was not actually to um, Kearney. It uh-huh. was to uh, David Hill. Let's also point out here two of the victims we're talking about here. Larry Walters and John LeMay are young, blonde and pretty. Okay. Uh, this is not my notes when Hayward. This is not December 1997. This is December 1978, I'm assuming, or maybe 1979. Somebody got a little squirrely with his note taking skills here. Um, but this is when uh, Patrick Kearney pleads guilty to the murder of the three victims that were found in Riverside County. Again, that's Arturo Marquez, who had his keys inexplicably mailed back to him by the killer. John LeMay, who we've been talking about since the beginning, and a third victim named Albert Rivera. And again, as you pointed out, it reveals two very distinct types Mm -hmm. of victims. I mean, it's just their names, but it's pretty clear. Yeah, we have one victim set that appears to be blonde and Anglo-Saxon, and another victim set that appears to be Latino males. So the grand jury, who is presented with all of the evidence that the cops have, will not indict David Hill, and he is set free. So David Hill, who lived in a house where bodies were being dismembered on a regular basis in the bathtub, 
is not indicted. David Hill, who John LeMay was going to visit on the last mm-hmm. time that he was seen or known, his whereabouts were known of by anyone who cared about or loved him, was going to visit David Hill. He's set free and not charged and with not anything. charged with anything. Meanwhile, in February of 1978, Kearney is charged with 18 killings in Los Angeles County, which calls upon the service of a different deputy DA for those murders. His name is John Bro. He is interviewed. He's since retired. Um, uh, he said that not only do they have the trash bag links, but that Kearney used a certain type of tape that was only in use at Hughes Aircraft. And that this is where his most heinous crime allegedly took place, which is a five, an eight-year-old victim, excuse me, named Merle Hondo Chance, who was riding his bike in the parking lot of Hughes Aircraft, and it broke. And Patrick went out and took him to a bike shop nearby to get the bike fixed. He took the boy to a taco stand, promised to take the kid to Disneyland, and again, Kearney's account is that he killed the young boy Because in the course of their conversation, he, being Kearney, revealed so many details that could link him to other murders he had committed that the boy simply knew too much. I don't believe that story either. I don't want to to speculate in too much detail. I don't tend to believe the story, um, but I do tend to, like, there have been no other children. Yeah. None of the other victims appear to have been children. So I do think that the part about it not being a sexual kill mm-hmm. might ring true. I, yeah. That doesn't seem to have been his um, his kink, his okay. M.O. He's still horrible. But I think there was some sense of uh, it was too it was too risky not to kill him. Yeah. You know, Go or, ahead. you know, the kid may have changed the channel. Who knows? Oh, it's just horrible. Um, all right, so so Kearney is also deal-making with the Los Angeles County DA, and, and he says basically that I will uh, tell you everything on two conditions. You don't seek the death penalty, and you don't go after David Hill. And they agree to it. They agree not to go after. I don't know what evidence they had against David Hill or didn't have against David Hill in the L.A. County murders or whatever, but my assumption from the special is that all these victims ultimately ended up in that bathtub in that house where David Hill lived. And again, he's getting off scot-free. I think it's about what evidence, what uh, clues and evidence they didn't have against him. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it was a more uphill climb because the bodies are not there. The there's nothing to put him in proximity to those people or mm-hmm. in, you know, like, yeah, there's tape, but there's a lot of employees at Hughes Aircraft. And yeah, there's exactly. a, their trash bags and tape are not kept on, in a vault somewhere. Everybody has access to them. And, you know, like, it, I, DNA was not what it is. I just think there was, I think they had a harder case to prove. Mm-hmm. Like also giving him a break on the death penalty in that day and age on this kind of killing. Yeah, that seems like they were willing to take the compromise in order to get the confession because it was going to be a more uphill battle to make the case without it. Yeah, that that was my take on it because it seems so egregious mm-hmm. um, at this point. But I, I don't see any other motivator for them. I, I you know, 
Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think you're right. They really care about what he wanted. I just can't imagine that was no. A... I yeah, they were getting stuff out of him that they thought was clearly of value and that they couldn't get anywhere else. I think you're right. They didn't have the the physical evidence. And he had his convinced confession. them. He had given yeah. them actual you know body locations and remains and substantial uh, substantiatable if that's a word stories. Right. <laughs> Maybe too many modifying syllables. Um that they could prove that he was he was not kidding. He was yeah. telling he knew what he was talking about and there had been people killed and he knew where some remains where the bodies were buried. Right. When it was possible to know that. I think he didn't know where most of them were because as I say, he had trusted local uh refuse management to uh mm-hmm. to dispose of the bodies for him. Um Patrick Kearney is currently serving life in prison. He went to jail for life for these crimes. And uh, it's pretty, you know, it's a pretty heinous and hideous crime. But it really left Christopher and I with uh, with one really big question. Mm-hmm. Where, Where is, is David, David Hill? Hill? I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and I'd like to take a moment to congratulate my co-host and producing partner, Christopher Rice. He's got not one, but four new books coming out in 2022. But today, I'd like to tell you about one in particular, a standalone thriller called Decimate. It's the terrifying story of what happens to our kitchen here at the studio Um, when I ask Christopher to make the tea. Yeah, no. When I said improvise the promo, I didn't say you could make shit up. I am not making this up. Look at that kitchen. Okay. Hi, party people. Decimate is actually a thriller about telekinesis and near-death experiences. The page-turning tale of a woman who becomes convinced her brother is being held hostage by a supernatural force following his death in a fiery plane crash. It has nothing to do with tea or our kitchen, and you can pre-order it on Amazon now. And while it is spine-tingling and terrifying, it is nothing compared to what I'm going to have to order off of Amazon to clean up that kitchen. Will you shut up about tea and our kitchen? Oh, I never shut up about tea. Okay. Oh. My. God. Now, if you're a regular listener to this podcast, sorry, I had to reach for the paper. I supposedly got ready during the break. You know why. <laughs> you know why we were saying certain details of these crimes with emphasis in our voices. And if not, we're going to tell you. If not, we're going to tell you in excruciating detail. Blonde, young, and pretty. Head, hands, and feet removed. Are all details wrapped in plastic black plastic bags trash bags with duct tape in a trash receptacle? These are all details of an unsolved murder we have been talking about for years now on this podcast, years. and that's the murder 
of William Arnold Newton, otherwise known as Billy Newton, otherwise known as Billy London when he performed in gay adult films in the 80s and 90s. Now, we're going to get all into this for you right now, but if you're the type of obsessive person like we are who wants to either read ahead or go down a wormhole on this topic, we have multiple episodes devoted to the Billy Newton case, and they are episodes 37, 48, 60, 63, 74, and 98. And they are all part of a sequence, so if you want to do a search on your favorite podcast platform, it's The Murder of William Arnold Newton, parts 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. The most recent episode, 98, is a really good introduction to the whole extent of what we have done and talked about on the case here on the podcast. And if you don't know, if you're not familiar with it, our podcast was actually heard by and responded to by the Los Angeles Police Department. Mm -hmm. And they have taken leads that we have uncovered and proceeded with them in their own continuing investigation of this still unsolved murder. It took place in 1990. October 1990. October 1990. So not that long after this time frame that we're talking about. When we okay, so you had your reaction to watching this special, and you said to me when I saw you, you have to call me when when you finished watching it, which was a violation of our number one rule, which is we don't talk about the stuff we're going to discuss before the podcast. But we had to talk about this because and, there was decisions we had to make, and I knew that it was there's something connecting to Billy's story, to Billy's case. But I also knew that the killer was caught in this case, and that all of this happened in the late seventies. So I was like. And then when they got to the part where David Hill, who was intimately tangled up in in the prox- in the proximity at least to all of these crimes, is just let go. I went, I fucking fell out of my chair. And now we may dig into this and say the answer to David Hill may be that he died but four years David later. David Hill vanished yeah. after that. Like we can't, we with our limited resources can't find any evidence out there and if david hill is out there you know like and you want to speak up for yourself you have a forum yeah like tell will, us to shut the fuck up absolutely but, shut the fuck up but we were so taken with chapter and verse exactly the way in which these crimes were committed with the exception of um shooting in the head which yeah, was Kearney's, which yeah. was kearney's thing he was the one whose father taught him to shoot and billy newton was not shot he was mm-hmm. strangled at least that we know of there and was possibly blunt force, force trauma, trauma but he was not shot in the head there was no bullet found in his head we know that for sure let me let me give a refresher for people who are new to the billy newton case okay and this is the sort of broad strokes of it billy newton was uh leaving los angeles he was um he had been working in the porn industry for a long time. He had broken up recently with his boyfriend, who was also working in the industry. He was planning to move in to Las Vegas with his sister and mother. This was on like the eve within of, a few days of that ha- the the death. The like. eve of his move, right? Uh, he's living with uh, three roommates on the border between Beverly Hills and West Hollywood. He has plans with them later in the evening. Uh, he never shows up for those plans. It's later revealed that he walked down to what was at the time Rage Nightclub on the corner of San Vicente. In fact, this was the thing we found, was the witness who saw him there. Right, Santa Monica Boulevard. Um, He was, it was believed by the police for years that he walked out of the bar and was never seen again. 
The following morning, an off-duty police officer who has spent the morning serving warrants in plain clothes is flagged down in this breakfast place by a, a transient who says there's a head in the dumpster behind this restaurant. And the cop's response is, is probably medical waste. We hear this kind of stuff all the time. He walks back to the dumpster. He pops the lid. There inside of two trash bags that have clearly been recently torn open by human hands, probably by the transient, we later learned. Uh, The bluest eye and the blondest hair he's ever seen, which is how he described it to me. Um, uh, The remains, the the bag contains Billy's head. There is later discovered another bag in the same dumpster that contains his feet. Yes. Um, uh, the other dumpsters in the area are searched. They don't turn up anything. You know, for years and years and years, there were no leads, uh, no real credible suspects, no charges brought. Um, on the 30th anniversary... To this day. Yeah, to this day. On the 30th anniversary of the uh, murder, we did our episode. We established an email address, William Newton Investigation at gmail.com. I always have to double check it. Yes, William Newton Investigation at gmail.com. We were contacted by a gentleman named Ron Wheeler who said, I was in Rage Nightclub. I met Billy for the first time that evening and talked to him. I saw him leave in the company of a man that I believe to be Jeffrey Dahmer. We crapped our pants, or I crapped my pants. Eric hiccuped a little bit. He doesn't do that sort of thing. (laughs) Um, It's just so distasteful. It's just so distasteful. But I thought, there's no way. There's no way. And so what I did the morning after we got that email from Ron and we're coming in here to do another episode, I said, I'm going to get the the definitive books on Dahmer that I can find. I'm going to get the digital files. I'm going to do a search for California, that period of time. You know, this is when Dahmer was active, right? Billy was killed during... Dahmer's active years prior to his arrest, which was later in 1991. And I'm going to find something right off the bat that disqualifies Dahmer. And the short version is I didn't. Not only did I not find that, I found that he had recently reconnected with a mother who lived in California, um, that his killings had gone dormant during this period, his killings in Milwaukee, which is where most of them were centered. So there was a period of either quiet or a period of him killing people without anybody knowing about it. Like elsewhere. Yeah. Um, and so that brought us the attention of Detective John Lamberti at the West Bureau Homicide Division with the L- LAPD, who has inherited this case. Uh, he has been a guest on this show. He appears, or I should say, you can hear him because this is a podcast. <laughs> Let me get the episode number up real quick. Right. You won't actually, he didn't actually appear. In fact, he was, I think, on vacation with his family at the time of the he interview. He was camping. Yeah, that's episode 63 when we interview John Lamberti. Um, other people have started paying attention to this case, but, um, the Dahmer connection is going to be really hard to prove. Dahmer is not with us anymore. He was murdered in prison. DNA evidence from that period is not great. The collection standards were not, uh, what they are now. And the body parts that we have, the evidence we have was found in a dumpster. Yeah. Um, but this is the, I think the takeaway from the Ron Wheeler story Ron saw him leave with someone. Whether it was, by Ron's own account, maybe it wasn't Dahmer. It looked to me like it was Dahmer, but a lot of guys looked like Jeffrey Dahmer during that period. The mustache, the, it was sort of a holdover look from the 80s. It's just 1990. We're basically still in the yeah, 80s. Yeah, what you know? Ron said was that he was actually later watching a special about Jeffrey Dahmer. Right. And 
he saw him and he was like, oh, my God, that's the man mm-hmm. I saw Billy leave with that yeah. night. Yeah. So to be sitting here watching this special and to keep to hit, 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 you know, all these similarities, throwing body parts in a dumpster is not unique. I hate to say it. It's very common. It's a common way to dispose of a body. Yes. The surgical removal of the hands, the feet, the ability to drive a long distance in Southern California. I live in Redondo, but I'm going to dump the body in Corona. That's like a half-hour drive without traffic, maybe 45 minutes. And the thing that really, the thing that first really made me stick up my ears, because he's called the trash bag killer. I mean, it didn't seem that... He didn't really get my attention until they were talking about the skill with which mm-hmm. he disarticulated the bodies like it was he was butchering them. The detail that we know of mm-hmm. from Billy, from his feet, was that the bones were sawed through partially and then snapped. By hand. By yeah. hand. It was somebody who knew what they were doing, who had done it before. It mm-hmm. was not... It was not accidental. It wasn't a mess. It wasn't like he wasn't hacked to pieces. He was very skillfully taken apart. It was clear to it has been clear to me from the beginning of our look at Billy's murder mm-hmm. that it was somebody who knew what they were doing and who had done it before. Right. This was a skilled practitioner. This was not a crime of opportunity. Mm-mm. This was a planned event. Right. This wasn't like I got mad and hit you in the head and cut up your body and distributed it in dumpsters around the countryside. This is somebody who knew what they were doing and was planning to do it before they ever found Billy. Mm-hmm. Billy that was your insight that, that, that chilled me to the bone. Whoever Billy left that bar with was planning to kill him. Whoever whoever picked Billy up that night, maybe left the bar with a random stranger right. and met the killer later, but whoever picked Billy up that night was intending to kill him because it was done so quickly and so efficiently. It wasn't a matter of days before his body parts no, were found. It was, in the, the, it was the next fucking morning, 10 a.m. And if that if the transient ha- hadn't popped the lid of that dumpster when they did... Nothing um, would have been found. He would have just vanished. He would have vanished into the wind. And they would never have known what happened to him. And the only reason we know what we know yeah. is because of that very fleeting circumstance. And so... Here we are being introduced to somebody who was an ongoing participant or possibly even the lead. We don't really know the nature of the relationship in this relationship. One of the things I considered was maybe he convinced Mm -hmm. the partner, Kearney, to confess to the crime Mm -hmm. because he was the dominant one. Yeah, right. Absolutely. We're talking about... David Hill, um, in the limited photographs we see of him, is an attractive man. Um, he doesn't appear to be. We the the facts we're given about Patrick Kearney are with a mustache, right? Yeah, yeah, with a mustache. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, his mother came out in defense of David right away. Dave, my boy would never do anything like this. Patrick defends David. A lot of people are defending David. Like what, you know, and and so... um, And he may have gone back to Texas and raised his family. I don't know, but there is literally the trail ends. Finding what happened to David Hill after that moment is not something that's available to us. No, and like I said, this was not a a case about which I could download three well-researched and reputable books 
um, on the internet and start doing searches for California. There's or almost no mention of the trash bag killer anywhere to begin with. Even yeah. Patrick Kearney isn't well covered because he confessed right away and there was no big salacious trial or mm-hmm. anything else. Off he went to jail. They didn't have to prove anything. He told them and they took his, their, his word for it. He proved it to him in the interrogation room. Mm-hmm. And so the thing that I said to Christopher when we talked was, should we call... Officer Lombardi mm-hmm. and say he needs to wa- at least watch this this special because there are too many similarities here for this to be ignored. I mean, I can't say with any degree of Mm-mm. that this, you know, this is proof, but wow, is this I mean, this is somebody who was a contemporary. He would have yeah. been maybe 50 mm-hmm. at the time of Billy's killing, like completely mm-hmm. possible, and lived in the area and had participated in crimes that were very similar. And there were two men involved, and there were two very distinctly different types mm-hmm. of men being abducted, sexually assaulted, and murdered. And one of them was Billy's type. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The picture of John LeMay. Like, they're not dead ringers for each other, but I thought, wow, that's a type. And John LeMay was going to see David, David Hill, Hill yeah. not Patrick Kearney. Yeah. That was never an assertion. The family said. Mm-hmm. they That was how the police ended up at their door to begin with, mm-hmm. was that John was going to see David Hill. And uh, we're not, I don't think, told anything about John LeMay's sexuality. Uh, we're not told what the nature of this is. So if the family was aware of David Hill, it wasn't a secret friendship or a secret relationship. Um, it's, but it's always possible with things like that that, you know, it, they are gay friends or they're gay boyfriends and the family doesn't know. They just know them as a work friend. But that connection is not established if there but was one. But they were not peers. Yeah. there was an age. John LeMay was 17 and— yeah. David Hill was in his 30s. Like, mm-hmm. these were not, they didn't know each other from high school. Yeah. 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 Like, I don't know what the story was there, and they didn't give, as I say, this is a very bare-bones report, mm-hmm. and there's not a lot of other information about this case available. Yeah. They even said, the family said the only reason, well, it wasn't his family, it was the Walters kids' family, said the only reason they were doing it was so that people would know um, can't remember Walter's first name. Larry. Larry Walters. Walters. Yeah. yeah. Larry they Walters. wanted people to know about Larry. Yeah. They wanted to that they hated doing the 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 special, but they wanted people to know his name and know that he was, you know, taken too soon. Yeah, Larry. I mean, Larry was picked up off the street and manipulated and taken advantage of, probably because he was dealing with some special needs issues. They actually and said the reason they didn't—they always kept such a close eye on him—was he would believe anything. He was incredibly impressionable and would believe anything. He was—he had wrecked his car, which is why he was hitchhiking, and he was staying over with his sister for that reason because she lived close to the auto shop where he worked. And he needed. There were checks that were supposed to be coming. Yeah for him to her address, and so he'd been checking every day, and she said, why don't you just stay the night? And then she went to a Halloween party, mm-hmm. and he said, and left him there, and he said he would be there, and she never saw a him again. A Halloween party? Yeah. She went to a Halloween party. This was Halloween. A Halloween party. Jesus Christ, I didn't even make that That up. happened on yeah. Halloween. Billy was murdered on October, two days before Halloween. <laughs> I know. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Jesus. Okay. 
Yeah, it is really, there were just so many amazing parallels and similarities. And I just, I, you know, and we watch these true crime things all, all the, the time. time. All the time. And I will be honest. Nothing about this alerted me to this until that moment about did, the skill no. of disarticulating the bodies. Yeah, absolutely. And and I had always had an awareness, like I said earlier, of those two other well-known, I don't want to say famous, well-known serial killers um, in Southern California. But that was that was always the thing. You, you start to talk about Billy and people who knew that the region and the time period would say, well, did Randy Kraft do it or did William Bonin do it? And you're like, they were both in jail by the time Billy was murdered. So if there had been any, if they had been remotely active, Billy's murder would have already been attributed to one of them. Probably, if they had still been out there. But it never seemed like one of those well-known monsters was out there. But now you find out the... Because Patrick Kearney would be mentioned in passing, but I don't know why he didn't get covered the way those other guys I did. I honestly think it was because he just said, yeah, I did it. Yeah. And Randy Kraft never confessed. Randy Kraft to this day says... And he the same MO. Hitchhikers would take them home. He would drug their beer and do stuff to them. Never confessed. Had a boyfriend who was apparently clueless to the whole thing. But I don't think Randy Kraft was dismembering people in the house. He was dumping whole bodies on the side of the roads. That's how he got the name the Freeway Killer. But again, there have been so many Freeway Killers. <laughs> like been so these nicknames get recycled, and so you can get them confused. William Bonin had a van and had accomplices, and would abduct kids in the van. It was just a nightmare. Just a hideous, horrifying story. Um. And a side note to all of this, because, you know, we, we were actually having a conversation earlier in the studio about how advances in technology make other things possible, right? That the improvements in Internet networks is what made widespread streaming suddenly possible. The thing that they say made serial killing suddenly possible on this scale in the 70s was hitchhiking. It was a greater degree of mobility, which I, I would not criticize. I want people to feel free. I want people to f be able to hitchhike without fear. But at the same time, it was people were moving around more and they were moving through isolated areas more and they made better targets for killers than they had in the yeah, past. Yeah, I think hitchhiking is kind of over. I think hitchhiking was I canceled. think this yeah. did the end of, this put an end to hitchhiking, this trend. I think it's part of the reason why... Um, Sex workers are so often targeted because there's mm -hmm. that you know, itinerant lifestyle. Wait yeah. in a particular area, and yeah. the driver comes by and picks you up. It's the only group who are willing to set themselves up in that kind of incredibly risky, dangerous situation. Mm -hmm. um, because in the hippy dippy days, when this would still have been a part of, yeah, the hitchhiking was you know kind of a thing. Yeah, totally. Like, yeah, we hitchhiked to so and so and went to a concert, and it's like. You did? I, uh, I recently had a conversation with a friend of mine who was a young woman in the 60s, and she drove up from Los Angeles to San Francisco and um, picked up these hitchhikers, and they all went to the Haight-Ashbury, and it was San Francisco, and it was the summer of love, and she didn't lock her car, and when they came back, all of the hitchhiker stuff had been stolen, and she was like, where's this fucking summer of love I've been hearing about? I just got robbed during the summer <laughs> of love. Fuck you. Um, anyway... A light diversion. Um, but, yeah, I this is one of those things where, like... I have never I been just, so electrified. I just couldn't believe it. I have never 
had that experience of watching any of these things until this one. And then it was like, Christopher, when you get done, you have to call me because we got to mm. talk about this. Yeah. And I will tell you, our friend, maybe because he's our friend and, you know, has some genuine warmth for us, <laughs> um, actually said from the police force, actually said he would, in fact, take a look at it. And yeah. then he did hear similarities. Like, yeah. But I I can't believe that anybody could see it and not think, where is this guy? I think he would be 80 years old by now mm-hmm. if he's still, still alive. alive. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, I would, I think that, I would think that he probably couldn't be active anymore, but, but you never know. You never freaking know. It's you never so fucking know. And, you know, like I say, it may not, it completely may not be him and David Hill may have gone on to lead a blameless life but, and been truly clueless, but like... The house in Redondo was, like, tiny. Mm-hmm. That he could have been. And the fact that the kid was coming to see him. Yeah. And not Patrick. Mm-hmm. I don't think Patrick did that murder. Yeah. Okay. Like, why would Patrick have done that murder? Like, yeah. I think he may have confessed to it. Mm-hmm. But I don't think he did it. Because... Yeah. That's not who the kid would... Why would the kid have gotten in the car with Patrick unless he knew both of them? But he didn't ID Patrick. I I don't think anything we saw in the special was an accurate depiction of what was going on in that house when the kids arrived in that house or the young men arrived in that house. I don't think those stories were true. I think there was... I think it sounded to me like it was a gay hangout for for gay. They, they were throwing open their doors to young gay right, guys. Right, come over, watch some right, porn, right. smoke some pot. yeah. Maybe have, you know, get a blowjob or whatever. Right. It was that sort of environment would have been my, would be my guess, but I don't really know that either because we have only the most bare bones um, information and we have only Patrick's word for mm-hmm. any of this. Right. Yeah. Because ultimately the crime wasn't heavily investigated because they didn't have to. Mm-hmm. He proved to him, them that he was a murderer. And they took his word for the rest of it. Yeah. And he's still in jail. It's not like he's fighting his ex- for extradition or Mm-mm. extradition for a new trial or an appealing the crime. He doesn't need to be extradited. He's already in he's California. Already in and came Some back s- of his own. Even coming back of their own will and, and turning themselves in because there was a warrant out for their arrest. Everything about this is very strange. Yeah. And kind of like not suspicious, but like, huh, just gives you pause. Mm-hmm. But there was also that sense, too, that there is a bigger story there that people might have been willing to tell the people being interviewed that wasn't going to fit neatly in an hour. So so things were being left out, which is always the case. I mean, obviously, we don't want to rise to the point of a perfect murder turning a victim straight. It was actually gay and murdered by a gay hookup. Um, but at the same time, they have to make these decisions about what to include and what not to include. And when you come to the special like we did with this awareness of this other case, we may not have been offered everything we need to make the connections, or we may not have been offered the thing that would just take David Hill off the table immediately. Yeah, we weren't offered anything. I mean, we don't know anything about David Hill. The thing that I, one of the most striking things that we know about David Hill, if this is, if everything else taken at face value, is Patrick didn't kill him. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Patrick, says he killed an eight-year-old child because he might have had too much information about him. Wow. But he didn't kill David. Mm-hmm. And clearly, you know, if anybody had information about him... Yeah. It would have been David. Yeah. My God. 
My God. Okay. Next week, a change of tune and a change of heart. Yes. We're going to get back to the Pride in Pride the Month. The Pride. We're going to get back to the Pride and Pride Month. We're going to talk about one of the most enjoyable and exciting queer television shows Remarkable. to come down the pike in forever. Heart Stopper. We're talking, we're doing a Heart Stopper episode. Absolutely. We're going to be like those kids who are drawing pictures of those two adorable boys on the internet with hearts around them. We're going to Heart Stop for Heart Stopper. It is just, yeah. it was, yeah. If you haven't seen it, see it. Yeah. Don't wait for us to tell you about it because we're not going to tell you, we're not going to do chapter and verse. You should see it. It is unlike anything I have ever seen on the topic ever. My hats are off to everybody involved. It was on Netflix. Netflix. Yeah, based on a graphic novel by Alice Osserman. And uh, and so yeah. hats off to all of the, everybody involved. It is, it is not, it is exactly, it is exactly what I've always wanted to see. I just, mm -hmm. I could not have loved it more. It is just amazing. And we will be talking all things Heartstopper. Uh, next week on the show. Until then and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.